Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Tasers are used by police departments as a less lethal way of dealing with suspects, but the devices have not been proven to be non-lethal. 16 people in Connecticut have died since 2005 following taser deployments, and many questions remain about how tasers affect the body and mind and how police are being trained to use them. John DeCarlo is an associate professor of criminal justice at the University of New Haven. Whether we have criticisms of them or not, we do have to remember that they do offer a viable alternative to a lethal force weapon. But to address some of the public concerns, a new taser law went into effect in Connecticut. The reform was the first of its kind in the nation, requiring police to file a use of force report every time a taser is fired. Today, where we live, we'll learn about how tasers are used. We'll also find out why a controversial condition known as excited delirium has been cited in dozens of deaths following taser deployment. Later in the program, we'll also look to a new study out of Arizona State University to see if being tased can actually affect the way you think. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Joining us in studio is David McGuire. He's legislative and policy director for the ACLU of Connecticut. David, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me again, John. Also with us is Patrick Scahill. He's WNPR science reporter who writes the blog Beaker, uh, The Beaker at thebeaker.org. And uh, Patrick's been following uh, tasers in the news for the last several weeks and months. Patrick, thanks for coming in. I appreciate it. Hi, John. Why don't you tell us about this new taser law, Patrick? Sure. So as you were saying, um, this is uh, first in the nation, and it's really a, an effort to sort of standardize reporting um, after tasers are deployed uh, on, on individuals by police officers. Um, so there's a few parts to this. Uh, first of all, the law is it's very thorough, and essentially it requires, um, as I said, after a taser is deployed, for a report to be filed with the state that um, logs the individual's race, age, height, weight, um, the individual who was tased. It also um, details how the taser was used, uh, the mode in which it was used, which can be, so there's basically two. There's You can deploy the prongs into someone from a remote distance or, or drive stun them and kind of, kind of think of that as like a cattle prod um, or an arc, you know, passes across the top of the taser. Um, how many times it was used. And then um, it all, there's also some medical information that is in there as well, whether or not the person was injured, if medical assistance was provided. Um, so um, all that then gets sent to the Office of Policy Management, um, and, the, and the idea is, I think by January 15th of next year, um, this will start to become available online. So each department in the, in the state, um, you can go on and look to see how many times they deployed the taser, how they used it, who it was used on, stuff like that. It's interesting. A law like this, uh, David, coming up now, uh, an awful lot of what Patrick just said, I would have just assumed was already on the books. I mean, we, we've known for years that police, when they fire a shot from their gun, they're responsible for the bullet. There's a... There's a, a chain of custody. You have to explain why you fired fired the weapon. But there hasn't really been a law uh, about tasers in the same way? That's right. So it was a completely unregulated field. What we ultimately did at the ACLU was put out some information about the number of people that have died after being tased. When we started doing this work back in 2010, that number was eight. We're now up to 17 in Connecticut. So in the past decade, 17 people have died after being tasered by police. It took four legislative sessions to get this piece of legislation through that Patrick just summarized. 
uh, it is first of its kind, and I think that data set that will become available January 15th of next year will be looked at by policymakers in Connecticut and researchers across the country because it will be the first large data set with detailed data about taser use. Well, and one other component of this data set, too, that I should have mentioned, um, every time a taser is deployed, um, the actual weapon, there's data on the weapon about the duration, actual physical data that comes from the, so this is not an officer's report of what they did. It is, uh, you know, objective data from the actual device itself that accompanies the report as a a separate attachment. A digital download, right? Yes, a digital digital signature of the taser, essentially. So so in theory, because of the way the taser actually works, you'd be able to get that sort of information in a way you wouldn't be able to get from it from an officer, say, handgun uh, that that deploys. You're able to really download direct information. Not to get into the details too much, Patrick, you described it uh, slightly. A a taser essentially delivers an electrical shock, and you you describe the two different ways in which it's deployed. There's either a handheld device that is pushed right up against someone, Mm -hmm. or it's fired from some distance. Maybe you could just talk this through a little bit so people understand what we're talking about. Yeah, so essentially we're talking about a sort of a short-duration, high-voltage, low-amp electric current. It goes through the body. It sort of follows low-resistance pathways um, and can affect things like blood, roots, and, and nerve pathways to sort of incapacitate a person. Um, as you were saying, it can be deployed two ways. The drive stun mode, um, in some cases, has been used as sort of a pain compliance uh, way of using the device. So if someone's not complying or being physically aggressive, but you don't want to, you know, deploy the deploy it from a distance, you can actually drive some drive stun them in the knee, for example, very quickly to maybe get them to do something that you want them to do. Um, we should say too. I mean, in the majority of cases, tasers are used correctly. Um, they de-escalate situations in a way that both preserves the safety of the person, uh, you know, of the person who's getting arrested ultimately, uh, and the officer. And they usually don't result in people dying. Um, I mean, these are devices that are deployed tens of thousands, if not more, times um, all around uh, the country by all different types of departments. Usually, they work right. Where the issues arise is where. Um, they're not falling into the right spot on the use of force continuum, you know, when an officer is not using them in the right way um, and, and, and maybe using them on a person who's experiencing other issues like mental health issues or substance abuse issues. How would we know, David, if someone's using it in the right way? I mean, what, what guidelines are there for training? How do we know what police are supposed to do with a taser if they're going to deploy it? Right. So Taser International themselves, a huge multinational, multi-million dollar company, they put out guidelines of where to and not to tase people. So, for example, they say not to tase someone in the chest. Several of the people that have died after being tased in Connecticut were tased in the chest. They also say that you should take uh, breaks in between tasing and reevaluate whether that person needs to be elect- electrified again. Um, things like that should be followed through on. The other the other very significant piece of the legislation, aside from the data collection piece, is the fact that there are now model policies that every department needed to adri- adopt or adopt a more stringent policy. The biggest piece of that policy that we think is, is, is a big victory is that it prohibits the use of a taser on someone that is merely passively resisting. So that's someone that's not obeying an, a command from an officer but is not acting aggressively, is not holding a weapon. Uh, a lot of the people that have been tasered, unfortunately, in Connecticut and later died were passively resisting. So that that's a real issue. So the, those surrounding circumstances make the difference. We're going to hear from a researcher uh, later on in the program who's studying how uh, tasers may or may not affect your cognitive ability. But he's been tased himself, and, and he's worked with and around tasers for some time. And the thing that he told us, uh, David, is that Every subject he's seen reacts somewhat differently. He's mm-hmm. noticed people who 
crumple to the ground and immediately start crying. He's also noticed people who, as soon as the the taser deployment ends, they're amped up. They're excited. They're almost like ready for more. And so there's a variety from at least this researcher's experience Mm -hmm. in the impact that that they have. And how exactly does that play into any of the rules, regulations, or, or guidelines that we should have around this? Well, another piece of the model guideline, which is very significant, is that anyone that's tasered has to get prompt medical evaluation. And then there's also a list of potential outcomes that should result in the person going to the hospital. Ultimately, that's what we think is the biggest uh, safety precaution that can be taken. When someone's tasered, you get them treated by someone that can evaluate whether there is some need for further medical assistance and also to remove the barbs. I and mean, we've we've gotten intakes at the ACLU of people that have been um, barbarically treated after when the barbs are pulled from their skin and their clothing. So, you know, it's a complicated issue. We're not calling for a moratorium or a ban. We think that this data collection will modify behavior on the part of police somewhat, and will give us the tools to see if further reform is necessary. Well, one other thing I would just mention, too, is that when we're trying to scientifically, objectively determine how these do actually act on the body, there is a kind of a robust debate going on right now in the scientific literature where some folks are saying, you know, look, uh, the tests that have been done on subjects who, who get tased um, are done on people who are not akin to what officers are, are encountering in the field. I mean, these are people who are in very controlled laboratory conditions. They're not on drugs. Um, they're not experiencing uh, accelerated heart rates. Maybe they are after they get tased, but beforehand, um, you know, maybe it's going up a little bit. But it's it's a much, much different situation that officers are encountering in, in the field. And they're largely uh, conducting these tests on healthy individuals, like right. young individuals, uh, police recruits, college students, people who physically should be able to withstand what the taser is yeah. going to dole out. And and so really all we've seen in the scientific literature to this point are retroactive studies that have looked at um, sort of more progressive departments around the country who in the early 2000s were, were logging this kind of stuff, were logging how tasers were used and who they were used on. And actually there was a 2006 study out of the University of Washington. It looked at um, 75 cases uh, of death following a taser deployment. And they found um, in this study that there were dr- traces of drugs in about um, 80% of the people who died. Um, and more than 50% of the folks who, who died following a taser deployment had some sort of cardiovascular disease. So obviously, that raises a lot of questions about sort of what officers are encountering in the field um, versus what we might be gauging in laboratory conditions when we use these types of devices. But there's a lot of things that, that you can tell about someone as far as their behavior. You probably not aren't going to know as a police officer about their, their cardiovascular health or whether or not they have a family history of some sort right. of heart disease. David, did you want to jump in? But the vast majority of the cases where someone was tasered and died in Connecticut, it was a, a, medical, resp- a medical crisis call that initiated the contact, or they knew that the person did have some kind of a substance abuse issue at the time of the tasering. So I think those are all factors that need to be taken into consideration. The model policy that I keep going back to also has several vulnerable classes of people that police should be wary of tasing. And those are you know people with medical issues, small people, elderly people, children. But people that are, are clearly under the influence of, uh, of a drug are also on that list. So I, I think officers are getting the training. The other piece that I think can help is that crisis intervention training, having officers understand how to deal with people and de-escalate situations of crisis around mental health and drug addiction. I want to get to a specific case here, and we're talking with David McGuire from the ACLU of Connecticut. Patrick Scahill, WNPR's science reporter who writes the science blog, thebeaker.org. We're looking at some of the science and also policies regarding taser use in Connecticut. You've been covering a a case in Branford, Mm -hmm. uh, Patrick, where a 41-year-old man was tasered and later pronounced dead. What can you tell us about the case? Well, so uh, this was a case that began um, essentially with mental illness. Um, This individual, his name is David Warblow. 
Um, in March, he called 911. He was requesting transit uh, to the hospital for a psychiatric evaluation. A uh, police officer showed up to the house. Um, Mr. Werblow fled, um, and he ultimately ended up trying to break into a police cruiser. He was walking into traffic at one point, and um, ultimately he got into an unlocked car. So there was a report that the state's attorney's office in Waterbury uh, put out um, about this incident, and it gathered testimony from officers, witnesses. Uh, there was body camera footage uh, that was put in there as well. Um, and the report also says that the officer told Werblow to comply with his commands at least 40 times before he began tasing this individual. Um, we should say Werblow, he was, he was a large individual. He was a, he was a white man. Um, he ultimately got shocked about seven times, was found not to have a pulse. CPR was administered, a hosp- or an ambulance was called. He was brought to the hospital. Um, he later died, and uh, Maureen Platt, the state's attorney for the District of Waterbury, determined um, that the uh, officer acted correctly in this case. But again, this is this is a, a you know a scenario that's obviously extremely extremely complex and began again with a, with a mental health issue. Yeah, it, it, you want to pick up on that, David? Yeah, I mean the the, the issue with David Werblow, I don't know all the facts around it, but I know that it was essentially he was tasered for refusing to exit this parked car. Um, you know, this is one of the last three tasers taser deaths in Connecticut that was ruled a homicide by the medical examiner. So for us, that's really uh, something positive. The police uh, are starting to understand, as well as medical examiners, that these can result be the result of a homicide. So in that case, they found that the uh, physical altercation along with the electric shock during his schizophrenic episode likely causes death, deeming it a homicide. So we're hoping that this this evolution and kind of move away move move away from the excited delirium uh, issue will kind of make people a little bit more cautious in using these devices on people with mental illness. And when we come back after the break, we're going to be talking about this this issue of excited delirium. What exactly this means? This is a diagnosis that has been used many times surrounding taser deaths. We're talking today with David McGuire from the ACLU of Connecticut and Patrick Scahill, our science reporter. We're talking about tasers. And you can join us, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm John Dankosky. Today we're talking about the use of tasers by police, deaths in Connecticut after taser deployment, a new taser law in the state, and best practices for police as well. With Patrick Scahill, who's been covering this issue uh, at WNPR. He also writes the science blog, thebeaker.org. David McGuire is legislative and policy director for the ACLU of Connecticut. Joining us by phone now is Justin Juvenal, who's Fairfax County justice reporter for The Washington Post. He's also been covering this issue. And Justin, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on the air. But before our break, we mentioned this term excited delirium, which has been cited in dozens of deaths following police use of taser. What exactly, Justin, is excited delirium? Sure. Uh, Basically, what's going on is that uh, in encounters with police, police are finding people who are acting erratically, manically. Um, They have elevated body temperatures and... um, they often are impervious to pain and seem to have extraordinary strength. Um, they often are getting into fights with police officers and then suddenly dying. And uh, there's this term that's been coined to cover these cases, which is called excited delirium, which is controversial. Is it a term that exists outside the usage that we're talking about today? Is it is it essentially a medical condition that is cited when tasers aren't deployed? It's it's cited in cases that don't involve tasers as well. Uh, it's controversial because um, it's most often cited in cases 
where people have gotten into struggles with law enforcement officers. So some civil liberties groups like the ACLU and some medical ex experts uh, have questioned whether it's a real condition or whether it's uh, a cover for use of excessive force by law enforcement. Uh, David McGuire, I'd like to hear a little bit from you on this. Yeah, I mean, from our perspective, this is a very, very uh, questionable medical diagnosis. The American Medical Association doesn't recognize it. And what it really does is shift the blame to the, the victim, the person that was tasered and, and ultimately died. Um, one of the things that we see happening is that it's almost exclusively applied in, in custody deaths where use of force was, was, was implied. So it doesn't have to be a taser, but they essentially say these people had superhuman strength. And, I mean, we've read some reports. There have been three people in Connecticut that have ultimately been uh, deemed to die of excited delirium after a tasing incident. Like I said... Medical examiners in Connecticut are moving away from that diagnosis, which is refreshing to us, but it is a very controversial topic for sure. Hey, and, Patrick, we were just talking about this Branford case. I mean, here, here's an instance mm -hmm. of, of someone who has some of the conditions that the police are sort of warned about, mental health conditions, uh, tased a number of times. And what seems to come into this is, is a sense of, well, someone is going to continue to come at police. They're going to continue to try to stop them. They're going to use tasers, maybe repeatedly. Mm -hmm. We don't know what the long-term impacts are. It seems obvious that these two things would line up in some way, that, that someone who is, for whatever reason, mental health issues or because of uh, some sort of ingested drug, they're going to be impervious to pain, and therefore they might get tased a lot more than they should be. Right. And so, I mean, uh, to look at this from the standpoint of a medical examiner, right, I mean, how do you parcel this out? When someone is looking in a report for a cause of death after an incident that is extremely, extremely complicated, um, involving so many different factors, um, Excited delirium is oftentimes invoked. And, I mean, the toughest thing is there's not really a lot that is agreed upon when it comes to excited delirium. But the one thing that is agreed upon is that there's actually no kind of um, pinpointed symptoms that this actually manifests that a medical examiner can actually key in on and say, okay, this right here is directly connected to excited delirium, which is what caused this person to die. Uh, often, you know, the medical examiner is forced to look for sort of approximate cause of death that invoked that excited delirium. And maybe that is some sort of heightened mental state. Maybe that is some sort of uh, altered mindset via drug use. Um, but it's a very, very tricky thing, a very, very tricky thing for a medical examiner to parse out when they're looking at this. Uh, Justin Juvenal from the Washington Post, you, your stories on this included the case of Natasha McKenna, a 37-year-old woman who died after an incident at the Fairfax County Jail. Could you tell us a little bit about her story? Sure, yeah. She was uh, a woman from Virginia in her late 30s. Uh, she had suffered from schizophrenia for most of her life. Um, she, in January, she was at a car rental agency and started acting erratically. And police were called. She got into a, a scuffle with a police officer and then was later arrested. And uh, while she was being held at this jail right outside of Washington, D.C., um, she was about to be transferred to another jail. And... Uh, to transfer her, the jail sent in a team of officers to uh, remove her from her cell because she was not being cooperative with them. And they, uh, in the process of removing her, um, she was uh, thrown to the floor, restrained, handcuffed. Uh, they put a mask over her head to keep her from spitting. And uh, <clears throat> she was still resisting, so they tasered her four times to get her into a restraint chair. And soon after that, um, she stopped breathing and never recovered and died days later at a hospital. And uh, excited delirium was cited as her cause of death. 
It was cited as the cause of death, and, and what has followed from that? I assume that the questions have been raised about whether or not that was the correct diagnosis for her for her death. Yeah, basically what's happened, uh, the uh, family's hired an attorney to represent her estate, and the family and mental health advocates have questioned whether uh, excited delirium was really the cause of her death or whether it was the force that was employed to restrain her. She struggled with officers for roughly 20 minutes. She was hit. She was, you know, sat up, sat on by a number of officers. So they, they say, you know, excited delirium wasn't really the cause of the death. It was the force that the that the uh, jail guards used in restraining her. Uh, David, another case from right here in Connecticut that we wanted to talk about. This was from 2010. A 35-year-old Middletown man named Efrain Carrion. Can you tell us his story? This is a slightly different set of circumstances, but again, excited delirium is is cited. Right. So Efrain Carrion was a 35-year-old man who was ultimately involved with the police after a medical assistance call. He was handcuffed and tasered 34 times over a 10-minute period by three different officers. Uh, They they said that they had initially detained and handcuffed him for his own safety while they assessed his mental health condition, that he began to act act, uh, erratically, and that's when they tasered him those 34 times ultimately deemed an excited delirium death. I mean, for me, the, the cause of death is not really the ins- the issue at, at hand. The issue is how the use of force is evaluated afterwards. So in the Natasha McKenna case, the Commonwealth attorney found it was a justified use of force and used the excited delirium as a way to get to that conclusion. Uh, similarly, in the carrying case and all the other cases in Connecticut where someone's been tasered and died, ultimately the state's attorney has vindicated the officer found uh, justified use of force and no reason to push forward with criminal charges. So we, we're hoping that the recently passed excessive force legislation um, with an outside prosecutor being involved will change the complexion of these investigations because that's ultimately what really is important here. But but does that new law, excessive use of, of force law, d- does it cover number of taser deployments? Does it explain whether or not 34 taser deployments is the right amount, too many, too few? No, it doesn't. But the new excessive force law requires that any in-custody death by any means, so it doesn't have to be by a lethal force, meaning a gun, has to be investigated by an out-of-jurisdiction prosecutor. So we're hoping that there's a, a truly impartial investigation into these cases. That's what we need to reestablish trust in both police and the use of tasers by police. And this this seems like an important thing, Patrick, just really getting to, mm-hmm. to the, the basis of how these things are happening and, and really understanding the science behind why someone may have, have died, whether or not it had to do with tasers or something completely different. Right. And I also think, I mean, in a scenario like this, when a law is set, this is actually a good example of the law sort of dictating how, how training might eventually spill out at these different departments. I mean, I think the, in, in an ideal scenario, an officer is going to meet one, one force with the next level of force. And maybe if, if it's a person that has a knife, they meet that with a taser. Um, they're not going to be using a taser in a scenario where, as David was saying earlier, someone is you know sitting on the ground passively resisting a verbal command. Um, so this is a scenario where this new law hopefully can set some sort of uh, training baseline and, and encourage departments around uh, the state to, to do this stuff better. We've talked a lot in the last year about body cams on police, and the ACLU is looking at taser cams. David, can you tell us about this? Right. The real benefit of taser cams that uh, are better, the reason why they're better than body cameras is they automatically activate. So when the taser is pulled from the holster, this automatically shoots HD video and audio, uh, which gives a real picture of what's going on. So we're, we're advocates of that. It's an add-on cost, Taser International offers it as a package when departments buy the tasers. So we're hoping that this data that comes out next year will will give us some 
some good grounding to ask for these taser cameras to be installed. Would it help to have national standards on this stuff? Obviously, if there's a lot of money that's going to have to go to police departments to buy, whether it's body cams or taser cams, I mean, the money's got to come from somewhere. Does does some sort of a national standard make it a lot easier for money to flow for something like this? It does. I mean, but the, the issue with all these reforms is ultimately the follow through. So we have received all but four of the new taser policies from departments um, and sadly, most of them miss the mark in one in one sense or another. So there are many requirements, the medical attention, the passive resistance prohibition. Uh, so we're working with the departments to make sure that they comply. I mean, ultimately, you need to make good policy and then have a culture change to make sure that policy is complied with. Uh, Justin Juvenal, what's been the reaction in Fairfax County and in Virginia to some of your reporting? How has how has your state responded to some of this? Uh <clears throat> there hasn't really been much of a response on the state level. Um, there's been a lot of concern about uh, Natasha McKenna's death and the way she was treated in the jail. There's been a, a lot of discussion around mental health issues in the large population of people with mental health issues in jails. Um, there hasn't been as much discussion around the use of tasers uh, in Virginia. Justin Juvenal's Fairfax County Justice Reporter for The Washington Post. We'll have links to his reporting for uh, for The Post on this issue on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. Justin, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. We just have a minute left, David, and, you know, we, we've talked a few different times about mental health. Police use of force is something that's incredibly important, and, and we've tried to address this in legislation, certainly trying to address taser deployment. But ever since the, the shootings of Sandy Hook a couple of years ago, we've talked quite a bit in Connecticut, certainly, about mental health police training to deal with uh, people with mental health conditions? Like I said, we just have a minute left, but do you see that we're moving in the right direction there at all? I think we are. There's more of a focus on it. Like I said, these crisis intervention teams are absolutely essential. Some departments have integrated crisis intervention officers who really know how to identify and deal with people in mental health crisis. Um, We're hoping to expand that statewide. Uh, David McGuire is Legislative and Policy Director for the ACLU of Connecticut. David, great to see you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me again, John. Uh, Thanks also to Patrick Scahill. He's our science reporter here at WNPR. You can read more of his work at thebeaker.org. Thank you so much for your reporting on this, Patrick. Thanks, John. Coming up next, we're going to continue our conversation about tasers. We'll talk to a researcher who's been studying the cognitive impacts of tasers, raising questions about whether police should read Miranda rights to someone who has just been tased. That's coming up next, Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on Monday's show, America has seen a renaissance in storytelling of various forms, especially right here on the radio. On the next Where We Live, we'll talk with two producers who are telling stories of different types. Joe Richmond's been putting tape recorders in people's hands for nearly two decades as part of his Radio Diaries series on NPR. Our own Jay Holt is gathering stories from local residents for the Words to Give By project. We'll hear from both of them and hear a lot of Really fascinating voices. I really hope you can join us on the next Where We Live. Today in our program, a look at how police use tasers. A new study out of Arizona State University suggests that officers should look a bit more carefully at how quickly they question a suspect after firing a taser. Joining us now to talk more about the research is Dr. Michael White. He's a professor in the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice at Arizona State University. Dr. White, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you. Happy to be here. First of all, what turned you on to this particular research topic? What were you looking for in this in this study of how tasers work? Well, I had been doing uh, research on police use of the tasers, uh, use of the taser for several years, focusing on um, 
a variety of outcomes, effectiveness, and things like that. And essentially, uh, I was approached by the company themselves, Taser International, about this particular question. There had been uh, several court cases that had come up where defense counsel in court has, had raised questions about the impact of the taser on cognitive functioning and, and specifically whether the impairment that might be caused by the electricity from the taser could uh, render a Miranda waiver invalid. So the, the company was a little bit concerned about this issue. So basically, I took their idea, uh, their concern, and sought funding to carry out this grant, and I received a, a grant from the U.S. Department of Justice to do the study. So to be clear, you, you got the money to do the study from the U.S. Department of Justice, not from the taser company itself? That's correct. So I wanted to be clear that this was an independent study. There was no bias. That's important. So, so tell us about the study that, that you devised and, and how, you, how you made it work. There were two phases to the study. The first part of the study was a pilot study. For the larger study, we conducted that at Arizona State University. It was a, a randomized controlled trial, so it was a very rigorous study. And uh, we recruited undergraduate ASU students to participate in the study. And uh, we had very rigorous criteria for admission into the study. Uh, they had to be uh, essentially in top physical and mental health uh, no drug and alcohol use, and once they passed all of the screening criteria and were admitted to the study, they were randomized into one of four groups. There was one group, the baseline group, if a student was randomized to that group, they didn't receive any treatment or intervention at all. Uh, there was a taser exposure group. Uh, the students in that group did, in fact, receive a five-second taser exposure. Uh, we had a group where we tried to mimic uh, real-world conditions. Typically, when someone is tased in the field by a police officer, they've been involved in some sort of exertion, whether they're fighting the officer or running. So we had a condition where we, we asked participants to punch a heavy bag for 30 seconds, and that was to mimic the, the exertion that typically occurs. So that was the third group. And then the fourth group involved a combination of the two, the, the lucky contestants, as I call them, for that final group, punched the heavy bag for 30 seconds, and then after that received the taser exposure. And we administered our battery of cognitive tests at six different points in time, both before and after the participants received the treatment, whatever treatment they were randomized to receive. And so what did you find, and what of these findings surprised you? The participants in the two groups that received the taser, both the taser by itself and the taser in combination with the exertion, the participants in those two groups experienced uh, statistically significant declines in cognitive functioning, particularly in, in one area which involves short-term memory and auditory learning. And the decline that the participants in those groups experienced was, like I said, significant, much larger than, than the exertion-only group. And the other piece was that we did testing at the one-hour point after they had received their exposure, and by the one-hour point, all of the participants, or nearly all the participants, were essentially back to their baseline. So what we found was that their, the taser exposure caused a, a statistically significant decline in this measure of, of auditory learning and short-term memory, and it was a short-term decline by the one-hour point. The effects of the taser had worn off. So what should we know from the fact that the participants in these studies were either police recruits or young, healthy college students, people who weren't on drugs, weren't drinking? They were essentially really fit people who were taking these tests. Is there something that we should know about the results regarding uh, the people who were actually studied here that maybe when we take this information to the real world, we should use with a grain of salt? 
what you said is completely accurate. The individuals that participated in our study could not have been healthier. Uh, they were young, physically fit, uh, well-educated. Essentially, they're the exact opposite of the people who get tased in the real world by police. And the reasons for that were, you know, it involved university regulations and protections of, of, of human subjects. But the point that I've been making is that if we're seeing this decline in a population that is young, that is educated, that is healthy both physically and mentally, I argue that, that any declines that occur in a, a population that is physically unhealthy, that is under the influence of drugs and alcohol, that has a history of mental illness or is mentally ill in a crisis, the effects are going to be exacerbated in that kind of population because you have this, the effects of the electricity then in combination with all of these other things in unhealth, unhealthy individuals. We're talking with Dr. Michael White. He's a professor in the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice at Arizona State University, and he's done studies on whether or not tasers can actually change the way and the ability of people to think. It raises a lot of questions about Miranda rights. When one has read their Miranda rights uh, during an arrest, what might that mean right after they're tased? So what have been some of the outcomes, and what have you heard from people in the industry or in the world of, of law enforcement? Obviously, you said... The taser company was somewhat concerned about this, about some issues surrounding it. I'm sure police and law enforcement around the country are concerned. What are you hearing after the study came out? My colleagues and I have presented these findings in a, in a number of different settings. And, and in all of those settings, when we've had police leaders in the room, police chiefs, they've been very interested in the findings. Because, you know, we're talking about critically important constitutional issues. When, when someone is detained by police, and has read their Miranda rights, there are very strong constitutional protections for that person. You know, they have to understand the, the rights that are read to them. And if they waive those rights, uh, as, you know, most people know who watch TV and the movies, if they waive those rights, anything that individual says can be used against them in further court proceedings. So these are really, really weighty issues. And I think police are aware of that. The other thing that's come up is that I think there's a lot of variation in real-world policing in terms of when Miranda rights are read. So in many cases, the Miranda warnings might not be read uh, at the time of arrest. They might not be read until hours later when a detective is, is interviewing a suspect. So the other point that I've made is that the findings show that this impairment that occurs really only lasts for about an hour. So what, we, what my colleagues and I have been talking about is what are the disadvantages for police if they're taking someone into custody? What's the disadvantage of just waiting one hour and, of course, I'm talking about cases in which someone was tased during the arrest. Are there major issues or disadvantages that occur because they may wait that one-hour point? And most of the police that I've talked to don't seem that that's the case. They don't think it would hinder their investigations in any way. So generally, the police leaders that I've talked to have been very interested in the findings and have thought about ways that they can incorporate that into what they're doing. Another thing that my colleague Patrick Scahill, who's been uh, taking a look at tasers and how they're used here in Connecticut— he joined us earlier on the program. Another thing he's looked at is instances in which tasers are deployed multiple times in, in one scenario. So the, the test that you did is a five-second exposure to a healthy person. Patrick is finding that sometimes uh, people are tased two, three, four, five times, uh, one right after another. C can you glean any information at all from either this study or from your past study of how tasers are deployed about multiple uses and how that might interface with some of your findings about long-term or short-term cognitive delay? That's an excellent point because the effects of the taser are debilitating for five seconds. I know I've been tased. Uh, it is extremely painful for those five seconds. There's very little that you can do. But as soon as that five-second period ends, 
uh, and I witnessed all of this, the participants in, in our study get tased as well. As soon as that five seconds is up, physically, an individual is, is basically back to normal. So if someone is fighting with police and then gets tased, generally police have that five-second window to get that person into custody. But if they're not able to do that, it's likely that that combative person could start fighting again as soon as the five seconds are up. So I think it is fairly common with resistive suspects that it won't be just one exposure. It could be multiple exposures, and it could be other forms of force, too, as as the officers are trying to successfully take this person into custody. They could be using physical force. They may use pepper spray. So someone who's combative, they could use a range of different options, which then could have implications for the person's cognitive functioning as well. But the other point I wanted to raise about this study is that I don't think this study raises any questions at all about use of the taser by police. I, I believe the taser is it's a valuable device for police. It's effective, and this study doesn't raise any questions about the value of the device for law enforcement in the United States. I think it just raises some questions about what should happen after a taser is used with regard to the reading of Miranda rights and questioning of suspects. We've looked into this a little bit, and, and we've seen some unevenness in the way that police are trained to use tasers. You, you've said that you believe it's a valuable tool for police, maybe a tool that shouldn't be labeled, as it has been by some, as, as non-lethal because it has indeed resulted in some people uh, dying, and we've noted those in the program. But I, I guess I'm wondering if you feel like the training for police in the use of a device like this is sufficient, giving some of the things you found not only in this study but in your previous work. Yeah, I, I think you're right, John. There's, there is a, a lot of variation in departments' uh, use of the taser in terms of training, in terms of where they put it on their use of force policy. Uh, there are national guidelines now. The International Association of Chiefs of Police has a model policy that uh, I think departments would be well advised to, to follow. And it has some restrictions on, on when the taser should be used. And essentially what the IACP model policy says is that the taser should only be used against combative suspects. It shouldn't be used against someone who's not physically resisting. So you have someone who's basically just not following verbal commands. Uh, the model policy says that it's not appropriate to use the taser under those conditions. The model policy also cautions departments on using the taser against vulnerable populations, the elderly, the young, pregnant women, and, of course, it's difficult for police to know about whether someone's mentally ill or under the influence of substance abuse, but individuals who are mentally ill and in crisis are also at risk of having a, a negative physiological response to being tased. So there are some national guidelines that, that departments should follow, but I think you're right. I think there's still quite a bit of variation in departments, and I think we need to keep in mind that there are close to 18,000 police departments in the United States, and the latest figures I saw – uh, indicate that about 16,000 of those uh, deploy the taser in some fashion. So we're talking about near saturation at this point. Almost every police department in the U.S. issues tasers in some fashion to their officers. So I think the question you raise about uniformity is an important one, and we need to keep moving in that direction. A last thing for you, Doctor, and you mentioned this briefly, that, that you have yourself indeed been tased. I'm I'm hoping, actually against hope, that I, I'm able to make it through this life on Earth without having ever been tased. <laughs> so so I'm going to take your word for, for how it feels. You said it's, it's extremely painful for the time it's being deployed. What else can you tell us about what happens to the body, what you feel when you are hit with a taser? Well, what I can tell you, John, I've seen about um, over 100 people tased now, and the responses that, that people have are extremely varied. Uh, I've seen people who are really affected both physically 
and emotionally by the taser exposure. Uh, alternatively, I've, I've seen people who are essentially back to normal. They're almost supercharged. I mean, they're excited. They're um, euphoric almost. So the, the variation in, in responses is, is pretty amazing. And then, of course, if you add in the, the real-world conditions, you know, people who are under the influence of drugs or alcohol, mentally ill and in crisis, I think that that can also have a significant impact on uh, the effects of the taser exposure. And, you know, anyone who goes to, you know, on YouTube and, and starts looking at, at videos, you can see that, that some people uh, in real-world situations have essentially been unaffected by the exposure. And, and some of that may be related to, uh, you know, both prongs don't, penetrate the body or they don't penetrate clothing and there are reasons why the, the full shock might be uh, might not be delivered but there's a whole lot of variation in how people respond to respond to the taser exposure both in laboratory settings like the study I ran but also in the real world Dr. Michael White's professor in the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice at Arizona State University will be putting links to his study that we've been talking about at wnpr.org slash where we live Dr. White thanks so much for joining us I really appreciate it my pleasure our program is produced by Lydia Brown with Tucker Ives, Betsy Kaplan, and Josh Nalea. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. The executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Talarski. Our interns are Amanda Gallagher and Sarah Flaherty. You can continue our conversation as always online. Go to wnpr.org slash where we live. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us.